Well, hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson, and today we are going to bring you another episode of Tomes of Magic. Last time we spoke with you, we covered Technocracy Reloaded. We talked about everything technocracy, and our listeners are probably thinking, okay, we have covered the technocracy. We're ready for something new. But I need to remind you, listeners, Tisful, the technocracy is for life. What does that mean? That means today on Tomes of Magic, we are going to be bringing you the operatives dossier. Yes, there is more technocracy because we're not getting out, at least not yet. <laughs> so before we do that, uh, Terry, do we have any announcements? I have two announcements. The first one is I have been dealing with an absolutely wicked rash for the last few days. Hives have been covering a non-trivial portion of my body. Someone gave me the piece of advice last night to take a bunch of Benadryl to try and deal with that. So if at any moment I fall asleep literally in the middle of recording, it's not because of you. It's not because of the book. It's because I took the genius idea of taking a bunch of a CNS depressant before I needed to record. On the plus side, not itchy right now. So that's pretty great coincidental life to effect on a more serious note a listener reached out and said hey terry i want to give some feedback on the latest episode and a lot of the m20 episodes re uh, really i found it really strange that you and adam keep referring to the authors as if they were anonymous it's true that many wad books are written by teams of people and it's impossible to know who did what but you have interviewed the authors for many of these books. You frequently speculate on the author's intentions as though the process hadn't been spoken for. You've had great episodes with them. There's also frequently a very large difference in tone between the two. At this point, I'm paraphrasing. Between your frequently very critical reviews of a book and the much more joyous and positive interviews with the author, this feels disingenuous to me. Why the difference? Thanks. I thought this was a perfectly reasonable question. So this was asked in our Discord. I answered it there. So I figure I'd share it more broadly here. Author interviews to me are a celebration of the creative process. It is the author saying, this is what I intended. When we are reading for Tomes of Magic, we are not looking through that lens. We are trying to answer the question of how is this useful at our table? How does it fit into mage continuity? And what is the reading experience? For author interviews, we will frequently get the text ahead of time, but not by that much. So for instance, I was able to get the manuscript for Book of the Fallen about 36 hours before the interview. It takes me about an hour to read 20 to 25 pages of mage book. So for a 200 page book, it would take well in excess of 10 hours for me to read that. And it's just hard for me to muster that kind of time. It is very hard to have the entire text ingested for critical discussion in that period of time. Additionally, for a lot of these, the timelines are quite long, so the authors frequently don't remember a lot of the stuff because they probably submitted their drafts at, at the point where we are preparing to watch a book be released years ago. And I just don't want that kind of adversarial interview. We frequently say the author because even if we have a strong feeling that a bit of text was done by a particular author, I don't want to presume. In any given text, there's a lot of hands that touch any given word. An initial author may have done a first draft, a developer may have modified it, an editor may have updated it, a line editor may have made ultimate tweaks to the final text, and may have been sent back to the original author to modify it further 
further, especially as an idea develops or to make it align with something else. And I just don't want to presume. It also tonally sounds weird to me to repeatedly say, well, Satoro said, or Jacqueline said, or Hiromi said, or James said. And I don't like that, how that sounds on the ear. When Adam and I talk, we are primarily talking about the text itself. That is the object of focus as opposed to the author, which is generally why we do that. The other thing to to point out, which we will do in the future, is on texts where we have interviewed the author, we will include a note in our Tomes of Magic episode pointing to that episode. So you can hear the author's thoughts and what their commentary was, and we will do that going forward. But otherwise, that is kind of why there is frequently a tonal difference between a Tomes of Magic episode and a interview with the author. Thanks for reaching out, and I hope that explains the kind of difference tonally between the two. Yeah, Terry and I actually didn't have a master plan when we started the uh, Tomes of Magic series and when we do the uh, author interviews. Of course, Terry has done a few more of those than I have, but Terry and I were talking about this this week, and I was actually surprised how how much uh, Terry and I are very much on the same page, even though there was not a plan going into this. Uh, we, we really do have the same thoughts about what is the point of a book review episode and what is the point of an author interview episode. So I was, I was very pleased to see that we're of the same uh, approach on this. So uh, thank you, Terry, for sharing that. The other request that came up after it that would Adam and I may do is basically a discussion with Adam and I that says, when we run a game at this point, what do we use? And also, how do we read a book for Tomes of Magic? In the next few months, we will have hit our 100th Tome of Magic episode, which is simultaneously something where I want to cheer and cry. And once we do that, I think it may be in order to be like, hey, how do you two actually read a book with the intent of relaying the content to other people? And how do you read it critical, critically, which I hope will uh, elucidate some more of those questions. Certainly. Well, uh, today on Tomes of Magic, we're looking at the Operatives dossier that came out this year, 2022. Uh, there are eight authors contributing to it. <clears throat> it clocks in at 100 pages and this was uh, actually something of an overflow book from Technocracy Reloaded. It was uh, one of the stretch goals during the Kickstarter. It said if, if we've got this much support, then we will take the extra material that didn't make it into the book and we will uh, you know, clean that up and, and bolster it and offer that uh, to you in Operative Dossier. And so this is that book. So thank you to everyone who backed that Kickstarter. Terry and I uh, both did as well. Terry, can you start us off with a walkthrough? I will be glad to. Normally, I don't start with the cover, but here I'm going to. The cover art shows somebody being digitized, but they have a particular look on their face that says, if you fart while being digitized, does your stink get digitized too? And it looks like that agent is about to find the answer. Additionally, the character being depicted on the front is friend of friend of the show, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. The first bit that we get is entitled Tea and Intrigue. And I finally found out why the world of darkness is considered dark compared to ours. And it clearly said that in the world of darkness, it's maple flavored syrup rather than tapped distilled tree blood that is true maple syrup as God intended. So it was good to know what is one of the things that marks it as being dark, but it is two agents talking about how they are going to talk to a sea murd, a craft aligned mage. There's a little bit of a back and forth 
and then it ends. We also find out that the technocracy has something called hyper tea. As the person comments, the tea tasted awful, completely unlike the hyper tea served at the office. I thought that was remarkably stupid at first, but as I read the book, I found that that was just one of those little things to drop in to point out that the technocracy is a different beast. And this book is littered with it, and I grew to love them. Adam, did you have any thoughts on the prelude? Well, after that great prelude fiction in uh, Technocracy Reloaded, I was hoping for some more of that, and I didn't quite find it here. Prelude fiction has a you know s- sort of interesting discussion, and then it sort of ends, and I was like, okay, that was a fiction piece, yeah, yep. all, all right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the next section is entitled Introduction, Facing the Future, and in Facing the Future, It reminds us again that the monolithic technocracy is gone, but what is remaining is complicated and busy and highly active. It talks about how some of the first questions that you need to ask as somebody running a game is what meta plot options are you going to take? What considerations are you going to make about the world that you are playing in? The first is how do you want to treat the dimensional anomaly? In the late 90s during the week of nightmares, there was a massive storm that arose between the realms, between the Umbre and mundane reality that cut off the technocracy. And that if that event did not happen, the technocracy has dozens of realms, hundreds of ships, and thousands of agents on the other side. I appreciated this because it gave me a sense of scale to it, which I previously don't feel that I had gotten. It gives us an idea of just how large that technocracy was and also kind of explains why they tried so hard to make contact again. There's also the question of, is there nephondic infiltration? There, uh, This continues a trend of using the term fallen in two different ways, in the same way that M20 Core used the term corrupt in two different ways. I think in a game that has literal metaphysical taint, like in the form of the Fomori or the Nefondi, when we say fallen or corrupt, we are often referring to a metaphysical process, where here, sometimes fallen or corrupt simply means losing touch with their ideals. In addition, it talks about the Horizon Assault, which is where a hollower let in a technocratic force to more or less destroy the technocratic stronghold of Horizon, which may may or may not happen. And the important part being, if it did, does the technocracy have a special relationship with the hollowers? This is something that then comes up again later, which I appreciated. This book in general is more aware of where Mage as a whole has come from. So as a lorehead, I appreciated that. It then talks about the purge of the crafts, that there was a explosion of activity in the late 90s, early 2000s, which led to the crafts being particularly targeted for action, pushing some of them to join traditions. M20 posited that if this happened, the crafts themselves really didn't go away. It was just a significant minority that joined the traditions. And it brings up the reasonable question that if that indeed happened, they're probably very hesitant to work with the technocracy at current. It gives us the idea that the theme they want to go for is saving the ideal, that there is something wonderful within the technocracy. They are extremely problematic, but if we're going to save humanity, we may still need to engage with it. And then it gives us a chapter-by-chapter walkthrough. What would you think of the introduction, Adam? Uh, well, it, it kind of stood out to me uh, in the introduction. Uh, it says, the soulless monolith of early mage is obsolete. Well, 
yeah, I was obsolete in 1995, so 27 years later, it's still obsolete. But other than that, yeah, I, I did appreciate some of the information, letting a storyteller know what range of options they have. In Mage 20, it, uh, you know, there were many sidebars saying, look, you can do the meta plot this way or this way, Avatar Storm or no Avatar Storm. And so this book reminds you, hey, uh, the technocracy that you have to work with as a storyteller can be quite different based on these meta plot decisions. So yeah, the, those decisions are yours to make. Uh, don't forget about that and choose wisely because it will have a big impact. So oh, that was good to see. But I'm ready for chapter one. Chapter one opens with a piece of art that I am divided on. So one of the recurring themes of Technocracy Reloaded was strangely drawn people, not as in strange looking people in the sense that they were uh, reality deviants or anything that, but just faces that were kind of off, like somebody had a robot do it from description. And this opening art piece also featured another possibly recurring motif, which was incredibly reflective wood. And this table, though, shows that in Technocracy Reloaded's uh, operatives dossier, we have gone beyond this. This goes not just from reflective wood, but projecting wood. This is a wooden table that is clearly depicting an image with strange-faced people standing around it who aren't quite sure how eye contact works. In that Christopher Shy-like way of saying, yes, I'm attractive and yes, I'm powerful, but maybe I should have a tasty cake or something like that. Chapter one is entitled Constructs and Symposiums. And this starts with a motive of, of darkness for me in that they chose to pluralize symposium to symposiums, where in, in second edition, it was pluralized to symposia, which I just think sounds cooler. This section leads us through different places. And the first is Arcology X, which is a arcology, a self-sustaining community that is in the Sobaic Mountains and the foothills of Western Korea. And it is about 100 kilometers south of Seoul. It is a self-sustaining uh, research university. Its goal is to be completed by 2040. It focuses on sustainability and working together internally. And it, it uses the elemental dragon names and refers to them as methodologies. Adam, when we read Technocracy Reloaded, were the names like yellow and white dragon considered to be methodologies or just alternate names for the conventions? Well, as I recall, they wanted to say we've renamed these factions, but really from reading that large uh, sidebar, the impression I got was the conventions are called this over in East Asia. That, that was really what, what came through for me. Yeah. And here they're referred to as methodologies. So I don't know if the author is conflating the term methodology with convention, or they're saying within the iterators, there is a methodology known by the dragon name. They also indicate that there are a number of other regional variant names, which makes perfect sense. And honestly, I would love to get this for the traditions that in this area, they're known as the Celestial Chorus, where in this area, they're known as the Singers of the One, where in this area, they're known as blah blah and so forth. This arcology will hopefully one day host the capital of South Korea, which I thought was kind of interesting. It has a presence on the digital web. It sits upon a node that is being attacked by Therianthropes, which is to say werewolves we get a bunch of information about key personnel that are operating here. The next one that we get is the Multinational Military Development Site, 
Northeast Territory, Australia, which is just a big kaboom place. And I complained a lot about the art of Technocracy Reloaded, where each image was duller than the last. This book brings back the energy, and I appreciated it. Outside of that one remarkably reflective wooden table that started this chapter, page 17 shows someone that has clearly been shot in the chest by an experimental device. And you can kind of see them going like, I'm fine. Or alternatively, the other person going, get me a mop. And there is just a cool as a cucumber gal there with a, with a, a futuristic science clipboard who is writing down some sort of test result, but clearly wearing ear protection. I appreciate that this person depicted is left-handed. The technocracy is so futuristic. They have come up with a pen and clipboard option for the left-handed where you can hold the pen normally and not smudge. This is kind of a slightly wackier place where people do weird projects as long as it kind of raises money that people are coming up with uh, crazy stupid weapons and so on. And I am here for it. It mentions that occasionally people are given the question of, but why though? And this is one of the cases in the technocracy where they remind you that science is sometimes about coulda, not shoulda. The construct personnel, we get a few. We Again, we get a, a few more people. We get a, a complicated AI that people are interacting with. The next one is the terranorming research and application location at Lake Delton, Wisconsin. This is located near the Wisconsin Dells. And again, this is ridiculous and I love it. Basically, it's a technocracy research base that it's immediately next to a whole bunch of water parks where they're like, there's a lot of new mortals coming through here. If something weird happens, they'll be gone anyway. Who cares? And that is my technocracy where it's like, we love the masses. Any individual member of the masses, we don't give a crap about, but the masses as a whole, we're fine with. And it talks about the them doing applications in terranorming and seeing what mortals can accept. And I think this is an amazing opportunity for a Monster of the Week episode, especially for the idea that as what the mortals will accept changes, other reality deviants are kind of interested in what is going on there. This section is interesting because the character write-ups here are full character write-ups. We get full stat blocks and everything. The next one is Ultima Thule, which I think is interesting because from like traditional depictions of Ultima Thule, that is normally the Arctic, not the Antarctic. This indicates that it is the most remote research base the technocracy has. This is one of the cases where I wish it were more aware of its past because there is no mention throughout either Technocracy Reloaded or this book about Yamaja Station, which was kind of the center of technocratic activity in Late Revised, which was a deep sea research vessel that may have a dark past to it, which I thought was really neat. And having more of those, I thought, would be well. It indicates that this area is swirling with interdimensional energies, which makes communication difficult, which I thought was cool. Give me a system for it in some way, shape, or form, or a recommendation on how to implement it in my game. It talks about how it's cold and dark and no one likes to be here and people are here for nine to 10 months at a time. I appreciate that Antarctica is very cold during the Antarctic winter, but there's also the flip side where the sun's up nearly constantly during the summer. People try and go places sunny and warm, but there's also a network of wormholes that connects it to other place. Yes. 
Some information on where those places could be, I think, would be great. It's indicated that this is a progenitor research facility where people try to uh, release weird entities. And if it happens that they die, that's fine. They don't have to deal too much with unbelief, which I thought was neat. We get Experimental Station Symposium. This is just known as The Station and is located near Wilmington, Delaware. We get the Enprene Corporation, which is the fake version of DuPont. The area is periodically exalted by Black Spiral Dancers. It is in direct opposition to Pentax. And that is interesting to me because it indicates it means that the technocracy knows what Pentax is, who is behind it, and who the Black Spiral Dancers are. And to me, that is strange because that was the whole contrivance of Special Projects Division, that we wanted a group that had plausible deniability that insulated the rest of the technocracy, but now it indicates that they know. So I don't know if this is an omniscient view and your average technocrat would be unfamiliar with it, or if it is common knowledge, because those are two very different games to me. We get more information on symposium staff as well as some ideas for plot hooks. Overall, I like the energy and ideas that this section brought. Each entry was formatted differently, which was a little bit infuriating. For instance, the last one had plot hooks. Two of them had full character write-ups. The rest of them didn't. We're pretty early in the book, and there were already some things where editing was missed. There's a character whose height is listed as six apostrophe space I-N-C-H-E-S space quotation mark. So they used both ways of presenting. Messy in terms of that regard, there were a bunch of cases where I would have liked a little more explicit plot hook ideas as opposed to plot studs, things so that you could draw a plot on. But on the whole, it's interesting. And unlike the entries that we have in Technocracy Reloaded, these are a bit wackier and focusing more on the technocracy dealing with other supernatural elements or other super science things as opposed to like, they have a facility in Nairobi which is working on corn. It gets 4% more yield. Don't get me wrong. That is vital and important. Probably not going to be the cornerstone of my globe-spanning mage plot. It could be, but alternatively being like, yeah, we got a station in Antarctica full of wormhole generators and periodically something that looks like Cthulhu's baby comes through. and We got to keep that on lockdown. Is a little more... Uh, tonally in line with the kind of technocracy game I would want to run. What do you think about it, Adam? Well, uh, Mage 20 opens up the Umbra once again and even says that hey, now there's Horizon Realms, now there's Horizon Constructs, and um, I you know, really like that as, as a Mage fan. But this chapter gives us, I think it's five uh, constructs and no... Horizon constructs. They're, they're all firmly on Earth. So I, I think the contributors to Mage have become very, very comfortable with the uh, revised edition of, approach to this. And it'd be nice if they could sort of open things up a bit. But I think it was Arcology X in South Korea that is powered by geothermal wells. And I thought, yes, this is so cool. Why is this uh, the first time I remember reading about this in a Mage book? If the technocracy has sphere magic and they're all about high tech, I mean, it seems like years ago they should have been digging pits, you know, deep down into the the crust of the earth to hit, uh, you know, the magma and using that heat to generate uh, energy. That's the kind of thing that I would expect from the technocracy. You you should be normalizing that so that us sleepers can get some access to cool stuff like that too. Because darn it, that's how I want to generate my electricity, not coal, which is 
boring and messy. <laughs> I anyways. also like the idea, though. There's a lot of games where people people uncover darkness by digging too deep. I like the idea that the technocracy does so literally. That every time the reason there isn't more geothermal power is every time they dig, they just find another nephondic la- labyrinth, and they're just like, <laughs> "Darn it! There's another one." We just let's like you you unearth an ancient Gelidian. What, what resource were you seeking? Uh, surprisingly hot water. And people are like, ah, this, this is, uh, <laughs> that's, that's your damn technocrats. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, but I, I really like that idea that, Hey, you know, we're, we're doing this. We've been doing it for years and uh, we're just trying to normalize this for the sleepers. And it's like, yeah, th- that's cool. I, I definitely like that. Page 19. We have Alexis Carmody who is a member of a construct who is unenlightened, yet has advanced all the way to tier three in the technocracy. In technocracy reloaded, we saw that there are tiers zero through five. And so like tiers zero and one being for sleepers, extraordinary citizens, and then up around five, you have uh, high level leaders of the technocracy. And so an unenlightened person becomes a tier three. That is an interesting uh, org chart, to, to say the least. How, how did they get that high? I, I don't know. That was a little weird. On uh, Ultima Thule uh, construct in Antarctica, I really, you know, as Terry said, I really love this idea of opening up portals to the Umbra and sending stuff through, having weird stuff come out. I mean, if, if you've got to have your construct on Earth, yet you want to have some kind of contact with the Umbra, then... Yeah, go go down deep into Antarctica, open up all those portals, and pretty much nobody's going to know about it. So this this is really cool. Um, now my complaint is on the same thing because it it says that Ultima Thule, because of all this activity, it is uh, unusually hard to spy on it. It is also very hard for other mages in other parts of the world to open up a door and walk through and say, "Hey, I raided your base." So it's like, okay, if it's harder, give me give me some systems. Like how much harder, and and what might happen if someone punches a door through to there, anyways. Let's see, on page 27, it's saying that awakening happens when you clone a mage. This is for the syndicate construct. They have a uh, mage who was quite powerful, and she was uh, cloned, and her clone awakened also. And it says in the book that, oh, yeah, isn't this the sort of thing you would expect? And I would say, no, no, actually, this is a very big continuity error. Because if you can take a powerful mage and clone them and get a powerful mage out of that, then the technocracy would have cloned their way to victory many years ago. So any... And for the Experimental Station Symposium, uh, this is also the, the syndicate construct, it talks about how they are creating competition for Pentex, and this is the way that they're going to destroy the Special Projects Division, which is working with Pentex. We're going to do better than them in the market and put them out of business, and is, isn't that a great idea? If you want to drive a business out of a market, there are much better ways, much more efficient ways to do that than simply entering into the market and selling better products than them. That is, at best, a very, very slow way to do that. So there were also uh, plot hooks for Experimental Station Symposium that they were pretty weak. They were so obvious. It's like after reading the descriptions on the personnel at this construct, it's like saying it again. It's like, you could have this person oppose this other person, or you could have a person, a problem with this person's secret agenda being discovered. It's like, well, well, yeah, that's what came to mind first when I was reading the descriptions on those personnel. So, you know, saying that that's the plot hook was a little crazy for me. But you know, after reading through these five, uh, Arcology X in South Korea and Ultima Thule in Antarctica were the two that really stood out as interesting and fun. Those are the two I would like to circle back and uh, use in my games as a storyteller. 
Chapter two is entitled Unlikely Allies, and it opens with art where I'm like, yes, this is my technocracy. And it shows a bunch of very well-dressed people. Importantly, it shows a woman whose hair goes beyond her shoulders, just firing at dinosaurs. Now, I wouldn't be surprised in this actual art if the dinosaurs are the technocrats and the people are like mortals or something like that or Nefondi or something, and it's like the Sauropodians or something coming to wreck some stuff. Or alternatively, they are firing past the dinosaurs at something, and the dinosaurs are trying to escape. I, all of these are acceptable options to me, and I love each more than the last. This chapter gives information on working with various groups. It talks about how the Ascension Truce tr could work. It makes mention to that as having been one of the metaplot options. It gets... And then the rest of the chapter kind of presumes the Ascension Truce did happen. So the Ascension Truce is the idea that at some point the technocrats say, ah, we should stop fighting and start loving or something like that. And like, what is the plot that comes out the other end of it? Either things have gotten so bad or that they have gotten so good or there's just been a sea change. And it talks about how an asset can be slowly increased in terms of respectability on the HOAR scale, which I can't do anything except for read it as like the whore scale. So I just picture this moment where a technocrat goes, you saved our asses back there, Treddy. If we survive, I'm going to put you in to be recognized as the level seven whore that you are. And I just want to include that in my game. So it talks about how one of the ideas when you're allying with someone is to minimize damage to the thought space. And I like this as a plot idea that the technocracy recognizes that this hermetic is going to do this weird ass ritual. And now the goal of the technocracy is to either do a veil out and be like, this is what it actually was, or to keep the whole thing under wraps. And I just love the technocrat tearing their hair out to either justify or conceal this. It's like the, uh, the the weird relative that comes over that you try and keep from talking to anyone at a dinner party, but they have to be there if you want to inherit your great aunt's estate or something like that. The, uh, to quote William Shakespeare, this shit writes itself. We then get information on, it walks through the stages of successful negotiation. Sure, we get a whole bunch of guidelines on how they interact with certain mission types, that things have to be going really really sideways for them to be involved in certain kind of elimination missions and so on. And then we get dissident permutations, which is how the different cross-convention initiatives that Adam discussed in Technocracy Reloaded would interface with different groups out there in the world. We get information on the, on the Challenge Fate Foundation and how they are genuinely one of the few groups within the technocracy that are kind of heroic and how they focus on dealing with mundane or non-sentient threats to humanity, climate change, disease, despeciation, and so on. We get a random mention of how the truth of the Kennedy assassinations is weirder than you could think. We get some information on how there used to be this group called the Caserify, who allied with the Janissaries under Chiron Mustai, which I am here for. I love those neat little references back to the past. Uh, it indicates that Mustai killed Porthos, which isn't necessarily how I read the events of things that he came at Porthos and he didn't successfully kill him, but ultimately containing the energies of the conflagration when Duizatap went kaboom is ultimately what did him in. The Black Daggers are the secret police of the technocracy. They hunt down the Fondi and they may be the heirs of the Caserify. It mentions that Cassandra Complex is familiar with the idea that there is the divide between the Unionists who are carrying out the mission of control of the current technocracy and the Utopians.
utopians who carry out the mission of the Order of Reason, and that the Friends of Courage are probably the heirs to that belief in the Order of Reason. We get information about Navalon or New Avalon that all but one of the founders is dead. Their goal is to de-escalate share and to make friends. So for them, the real technocracy is the friends we make along the way, and I'm glad I can say that out loud. It is an interesting space to navigate between patriotism and history. It indicates that they work with the Celestial Chorus and the Verbena because they all speak the same language. And there's a couple ways to interpret that. Like, they're like, they're the only groups that speak British. But I also like the idea when that when someone is like, you know who expect, like, who is okay with the divine right of kings and an island being ruled by white men and an ignorance of the of past practices? The Verbena. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they secretly really loved the Excalibur movie from the 80s, and I would uh, that would be perfectly acceptable to me. We get a little bit of information on the uh, Muktashaft al-Nur, the Collectors of Light, which they kind of seemingly changed the history of, which is fine. The section on the, the small internal groups are done in-world, so that gives it a little more narrative distance, because I think previously it was indicated that this group of Islamic scholars were kind of rebuffed from joining the Order of Reason, eventually were incorporated but stayed somewhat independent as of the late 1880s. I wasn't quite sure what was happening there. It also indicated that maybe they become a full convention at some point, that they don't like Europeans or didn't at some point, which is fine. We get further information on Project Invictus, that they formally don't exist, that they work with the Hollowers, that they are looking for friends, that they they oppose SPD, that their base of operations is a base in Cancun. And then we get some information on dealing with orphans and the unaligned. And I thought this was kind of interesting because it now proposes that there are multiple levels of kind of uh, mages that don't fit into the previous big four factions, that you have orphans who are individual mages that may not be aware of the Ascension Conflict or who opt out of it. The unaligned, which are small groups that don't tie to any larger group. The crafts, which seem to be at least large enough to have two locations or more operating contemporaneously. And then you have the Disparate Alliance, which is a potential umbrella group sitting above them. And I like this. I wish this were the opportunity to mention a whole bunch of orphan and online groups. We just don't really get that in M20. And that's that's okay. That's always been a wish list item for me. We get a section talking about how they don't like being called orphans, nor do they like being called namerds. So maybe we come up with some other term. It talks about how the technocracy recruits them and how it's like a surprisingly good way to recruit a mage that is in an abusive relationship uh, and whose life is just like crap is to improve it. And like, that's one of those duh things. But like the fact that the technocracy can win the Ascension War by like being like, yeah, we have a spare place. Like my friend has an extra room if you want to stay with them. And that being like the preponderance of the recruiting things where it's like, the technocracy has access to like rent controlled apartments and that's how they win the Ascension War is also surprisingly bears fruit and truth to me that they have vast databases. So they look for those who were in cults or who have been traumatized and how this is real rough because you are dealing with people that have a high potentiality to awaken, but also are kind of not in a great spot and may require a fair amount of work to get them to a place where they can helpfully contribute to the operations of the technocracy. And again, for some people, these things may be obvious, but for me, it was, I very much appreciated the nuts and bolts of if we are going to do this technocracy that tries to make friends before it shoots them, what does that look like when you're recruiting an orphan? It gave us some information on that. 
that it's not uncommon for them to use charity, bribery, or coercion to try and recruit someone. The last part is called Anomalous Allies, and it goes over kind of one-off of each of the type of supernaturals. And by that, I mean we get a vampire, a werewolf, and a ghost. And these were fine. My only concern is the fact that it just gave them spheres. I would have preferred charms or a little bit more information because otherwise it just kind of indicates that, for instance, the vampire has Mind 4 and Life 5. And that is, needless to say, potent when combined with Enlightenment 5. We also don't get enough trappings to know what their powers look like if they're supposed to look like anything. So I, I would have liked a little bit more word count. On the whole, this section is kind of interesting. I really enjoyed the asides on some of the previous technocratic internal groups. I would have liked a little bit more information. But on the whole, I can't complain. What do you think about Chapter 2, Adam? Page 30 states the technocracy has declared a state of emergency because the state of the world is so bad. This hasn't been done since World War II when the technocracy decided backing the Axis powers was a big mistake. The technocracy is now formally seeking a truce with the traditions. This is pretty heavy metaplot. In Technocracy Reloaded, it was an option. Here they're saying, no, this happened. And I, I thought that Mage 20 didn't want to take such a firm approach to metaplot, but um, they seem to be doing that here. Technocracy Reloaded and this book push the idea that technocracy wants to save the ignorant masses from themselves. But isn't that what the British imperialists said on page 46 of this book? I can't tell if this is meant to be clever or just an oversight. In the traditions section, there's a lot of advice on how to conduct negotiations that, to me, again, it, it was kind of like no-brainer, or it would be different in my chronicle, so why are we going into so much detail here? So I, I just didn't find that helpful. One idea in that section uh, would have been nice to say that technocracy has a policy when cooperating with non-technocrats of using tactics and equipment from five or ten years ago. That way, current methods aren't revealed to potential enemies. I thought that uh, might have been a nice little addition there. This book constantly speaks out against anti-vaxxers, but it isn't clear if they're talking about COVID vaccinations or the kind of vaccinations we had before those. And the two groups of vaccines are, are pretty different. So, I mean, if we're going to hear so much about how, how anti-vaxxers are bad, which vaccine are they anti-against? So that would have been a little helpful for me as a reader. Page 33, listing the 10 missions and how tradition mages could be involved isn't really helpful for me. As Terry said, sure. It's like, yeah, that, that was kind of covered in the previous book, and I wasn't even really crazy about it there. It would have been more helpful to give ideas on what targets they can move against or what they might specifically uh, accomplish. Uh, this part of chapter two was a great place for plot hooks, but I I didn't really see them here. The Challenge Fate Foundation sounded like a good bunch in Technocracy Reloaded. Here they sound like dangerous zealots, so a very different way of uh, using them in your games. I don't think one is necessarily better than the other, but it, it was interesting to see that that change in tone. Page 42 tells us the Challenge Fate Foundation mage uh, went in New Zealand used entropy in front of a bunch of Kopaloe uh, craft mages and totally fooled them into thinking that she was uh, the envoy they were looking for who was so full of wisdom. But Using sphere magic in front of a bunch of mages and then totally fooling them with that, that, that sounded kind of odd to me. It kind of puts the Coppola in, in a poor light. Cassandra Complex uh, has advice for crafts and how you can approach and deal with specific craft mages. There's one example of this particular craft mage. We talked to them like this and offered made them an offer like this. This section was really specific and really useful. I was reading through this thinking, wow, I would have liked to have seen this replicated for other groups in this chapter. That was very, very useful. It tells us that Navalon or New Avalon is, is different 
different now. In revised edition, they were run by a bunch of uh, rich white men elitists who drank really, really expensive wine on private estates and talked about those poor commoners. We must lead them better. And here it says, like, yeah, those guys are all dead. Navalon's nice now. Yeah, that's one way to change a group. It'd be nice if we could find a less violent way of doing that. But but yeah, okay. So Navalon has been opened up as a, as a more positive group now at, at gunpoint, apparently. But, um, but, but that is nice. <laughs> and one thing I really liked about the Navalon write-up where it tells us that Navalon is good at breaking the social conditioning that the New World Order is so well known for. Now, this I thought was a really clever piece of writing because this makes the group useful. When a write-up says a group, you know, a faction inside the technocracy is good at this or bad at that, or they're hiding one of these, then a storyteller has a particular reason to use them. I mean, after reading this, a storyteller who would think, yeah, Navalon, whatever, I'm, why would I use them? It's like, oh, they're really good at breaking social conditioning. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so the Friends of Courage rescue this guy but they can't get the information out of him. Um, he might betray them because he's got this social conditioning from the technocracy. It's like a potential uh, hot potato. So they go to Navalon, break the social conditioning, but then Navalon wants a favor in return. It's like, okay, I, I've got a story idea building up here. Now I'm going to use Navalon in my games when I wouldn't before. And so I think this is, is very good writing. I think each of these cross-convention groups or methodologies within conventions, if you say something they're really bad at or really good at or something they're hiding, now storytellers have a reason to use them. Plot hooks can come out of that uh, more easily. I would have liked to have seen more mention of why specific methodologies within conventions might have had a reason to seek allies in the traditions or the craft. I think the methodologies were kind of ignored in this chapter, and I think that was really a lost opportunity. So we have a section on how uh, bridges can be built with unaligned orphans, and I think this section was, was longer than it needed to be and not terribly helpful. This is a kind of complaint I've had with uh, all the editions of Mage. They want to have these big detailed sections where they talk about what you can do with orphans, but orphans are, are individual. Every individual is different, and so making Blake and statements about orphans becomes very, very difficult. So I think it's it's very well justified to have a section of a book talking about orphans and have it really short because, look, they're all different. Okay, I've been talking for a while. That wraps up my thoughts on chapter two. I'm ready for chapter three. You talk pretty, Adam. You can keep talking if Adam wants to keep talking. Chapter 3 is entitled Digital Web 3.0. This introduces the idea that there is, in addition to the digital web, there is something called augmented reality, that there is a layer on top of reality that is tied to the web. When you acquire Paradox in augmented reality, you get it in both your digital web persona and your mundane persona. Damage is reduced and that you can project yourself elsewhere and get access to AROs. I wanted this to make sense, but I'm just not sure what it is. My initial thought was that within the digital web, there is now this realm that is the size of Earth that has areas and objects that are only accessible if you are both in this realm of the digital web and you are in a particular part of mundane space at the same time. I just don't know what it is. I could not get a clear internally consistent image of what AR is. I think there is a version that I would come up with at my table. It is just frustrating to me to encounter that where I'm not entirely sure which one is 
witch. No, I, I just wanted to say that when I was reading through this section, it, it clicked for me. It made perfect sense. And um, I just want to say that this is not an example of clarity quiet. I'm not a danger to myself or others. <laughs> Terry, put, put the pen down. You don't need to report me. It's okay. But, but anyways, continue. It's just one of those things where I thought I had a handle on it and it just kept giving little things where I'm like, wait, 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 where it would talk about being able to move AROs, augmented reality objects from places to place. It also talked about the tag creation process and it didn't tell us what a tag necessarily do. So this felt like there was more there. Indicated there's a willpower cost to creating these things, which is new in terms of a system. And then it said these are additional systems on top of the ones that we have in M20 core, which is actually a beautiful write-up of how the digital web works. And then it just kind of restates a bunch of them. So it felt conflicted between, is this a new write-up or is this an alternate write-up? It talked about how in alternative reality, there are different ways of interfacing with Shexons, it gives us that you can resist the damage caused by a hard D-Res with a soak of difficulty seven. This is the first time we've ever gotten a difficulty seven soak in Mage, I think. We get the idea that sectors have something called a power rating, which is how much magic can flow through an area without paradox. So if a sector has a power rating of four, you can't do effects that get more than four successes. Anything with more than four successes will be translated into paradox. I love this. I will introduce this as an element of reality zones within regular mage. I like the idea that there are places within reality that can only hold so much magic. You can cut loose, but this this area of the city has a power rating of three. You will never be able to get more than three successes. And suddenly the rest of mage makes sense to me where it's like, no, the reason you have a sanctum is because this is the only place where reality is sufficiently pliable that you can have a 20 success ritual go off. That is an aside. We get a few new areas of the digital web. One is streamlined which represents all the area where information is continuously flowing through that falls like digital rain. We get the idea that uh, social media has its own presences, that there are online dating sites that you can visit in the digital web, that there are these hate gardens where twisted metal trees suspended cages of codes and the smell of lighter fluid where people argue that there are digital graveyards con containing all the lost data of people that have departed. And as social media sites get older and a larger percentage of their population is people no longer who are around. These become more common. We get information about the dark web and it differentiates between the dark web and the deep web. This was a fine chapter with a bunch of interesting ideas. It felt split between, we're going to tell you everything you need to know about the digital web. We're going to introduce AR, but it didn't really give a good reason except to say that there are certain things only accessible through AR, but then it talked about being in other sectors as being in augmented reality as well. Uh, it also calls it augmented reality 2.0 and we never got augmented reality. So again, it had a lot of interesting initial ideas. It just didn't quite land. It also did something very notable in that it says net fatigue. There are no systems for it. Please role play it. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you. If you're not going to give me systems, but something is going to be important, at least tell me to role play it. It may sound stupid, but this book is shot through with great storyteller advice that may be obvious to some people, but it's only one sentence and it's super easy to skip, but I'm super glad it is there. And I wish it were in M20 core or in Technocracy Reloaded. Digital Web 3.0, it's a shorty. This chapter apparently made sense to Adam. So what did you think about it, you show off? 
<laughs> yeah, I, I just realized uh, that that probably does sound pretty bad. But before this episode started, uh, augmented reality was actually something Terry and I was talking about. And I'm glad we did because as I read through chapter three, I read about augmented reality. And I thought, oh, that's so cool. I, I like that so much. And then Terry was saying, this didn't quite, you know, add up for me. And he was telling me why he thought it didn't add up. And I realized that I may be reading my own ideas into this text. And I don't actually have the definitive answer on this. So um, I agree with Terry that chapter three could have been better handled. As I said, it, it after looking at it again with, with Terry's advice, I'm not sure how much of this is my own ideas pushed onto this and how much of it is understanding the text that is really there. So some improvements would have would have helped out. So looking at chapter three as a whole, uh, walking through it, it helped me to remember that Mage 20 states that digital web is another name for the internet. Uh, that is how things are interpreted in Mage 20. Uh, back when it was started in, in digital web started in first edition, it was a place that looks a lot like the internet, but it's a zone in the Umbra. Mages go there, sleepers pretty much don't go there. And so in Mage 20, this is handled rather differently. However, the top of page 16 actually forgets this. Augmented reality, my interpretation of what I read came across to me as a really great idea. Uh, it's something that I'm going to want to use in, in you know, regardless what edition of Mage I am running, I think it, it fits. But my interpretation of augmented reality is when a mage takes a place, uh, when a mage is standing on earth in, in the, the physical world, and whatever place they're standing in, they link that to a place in the digital web. And so they kind of create a door between one part of the digital web and one part of earth. So that the place, you know, a certain distance around them is kind of in both places at the same time. And so the mage is, in a sense, becoming a bridge between two different things and letting them exist in the same place at the same time. And so what that could mean is that for those who have the electronic equipment to sense it, they can see people and, and objects and things in the digital web when they're standing in a... a you know, a city park in New York City. And also the people and objects in the digital web can have some perception of the lamppost in Central Park, even though they're in the digital web. And so there is a, a way for these two things to interact with each other, but it can be taxing on the mage who is keeping this uh, interface between the two places open. So I, I thought that was a, a neat idea. It, it of course, is, is playing on the idea where, um, you know, like Internet of Things, uh, different video games. Like I remember some years back they had the Pokemon, I think it was Pokemon Go, or one of the, one of the Pokemon games where you walk around in the real world and you're... A video game machine, I think it was like a portable video game machine, says, oh, you're standing next to this coordinate uh, in the real world, so you can sense this uh, digital Pokemon monster, and you can like catch it and train it or, or something like that. But uh, the guy who's over in New Jersey, well, he, he can't see that Pokemon creature because he's in a, a different place. So his, his Game Boy is going to say, no, you, you see this other Pokemon 
creature. And of course, there were newspaper articles of people uh, wandering into restricted areas and actually walking in front of traffic and stuff like that because they were looking at their device instead of looking at the real world and how, hey, this is a conflict. Maybe this video game wasn't a good idea or maybe a new version can fix this. And that is what this uh, write-up in this book is talking about for augmented reality. The mage who is in Central Park in, in New York City has overlaid one part of the digital web. And because he's paying so much attention to the guy who's in the digital web that he can now interact with, that he walks into a lamppost and, and stuff like that. So I thought that was interesting. Now it started talking about how the mage who is linking Central Park to this place in the digital web can cut the connection and then connect his surroundings in Central Park to a different place in the digital web. And so now it's it's like a different augmented reality relationship. And I think I understood what they were basically trying to say, but I, I definitely agree with Terry that this write-up is confusing. It does open itself up to interpretations. And so listeners, even though I want to tell you about this book, my interpretation may be off. I might be making all this stuff. And that is why I am saying... It is okay to think differently. This is not necessarily clarity quiet. So, Terry, I, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm, I'm going to be fine. Oh, yeah. If you choose to go marauder, though, that does have the benefit of allowing you to enforce your denial quiet on other people as they join your reality bubble. So if you double down enough of necessity, what you believe to be true will be the case and you won't accumulate paradox. So I think you're on you're certainly on the right track. That, that sounds really appealing, but but I'm not going to do that. Not not because I would do that. It just sounds appealing in a platonic sense. Sure. But anyways, <laughs> on page 63 of, of chapter three, we have given the correspondence nature of the digital web saying part of a mage's mind can be trapped there after a disaster, but not all of his mind be trapped there. I thought that was a really cool idea. And yeah, we don't have rules or systems on exactly how to approach this, but as a storyteller, that's such a fun idea that I, I'd like to come up with my own you know, rule to, to handle that because I think that is really cool. With augmented reality, you're linking two places. So if something goes wrong, then part of your mind gets trapped there and part of your mind gets trapped here. And of course, somebody's going to going to ask, well, what does that look like? Well, uh, you could give uh, higher difficulties on any uh, skill roles that have to do with the, the mental attributes. What is it? Intelligence, uh, wits, and uh, perception. You could take one of the columns on the character sheet and say, yeah, these skills, you just can't use them, and you don't know why. I think it'd be kind of fun to mess with a player like that just for, for a short time, not for not for session after session. That would be pretty annoying. Yeah, and, and there's there's other possibilities like that. You could say that they're they're getting stunned and they don't know why they're getting stunned. They keep looking around them. Who is, is stunning me? Well, actually, it's someone on the digital web because you're, you're vulnerable there, but you've cut the connection, so you have no way of knowing who on the digital web is stunning you. So you're going to have to look into this. But, uh, uh, otherwise, I'm going to keep you know making these dice rolls, and you're going to get stunned all of a sudden, and you can't fire at that guy because your hand twitched or, or something like that. There's all, all different sorts of fun ideas that a storyteller can can uh, work with their player on this. So just the idea of part of your mind got stuck there, but not all of it. It just really grabbed my imagination and made me want to come up with some rules for it. We have augmented reality objects. That is not a, a person or a place. It is is a, a thing, an, an object, like uh, you could say a trash basket or somebody's electronic device or, or something like that, maybe a weapon that is in both layers of augmented reality at the same time. It gives four levels of these. Now, I actually like this because, I'm trying to remember, I think 
levels one and two could be internet of things like say a refrigerator that's connected to the internet. So sleepers can understand this and connect to it. But the, but the higher levels, say levels three and four of augmented reality objects are things that only mages uh, can perceive and understand and work with. They're, they're totally beyond sleepers. So I, I like that. It made me as a storyteller want to work with this. And I'm glad that they didn't go for like five or, or 10 layers or levels of augmented reality objects. That would have been way too hard for me. It would have been frustrating. The difficulties on moving from place to place and on effects uh, were written with the assumption that the digital web is the internet. That means the expectations of sleepers have power here, uh, which makes sense. But I still like the idea that there could be places in the umbral zone of the digital web where mages can go and sleepers can't. And in those places, sleeper expectations of the internet do not hold power. So as a storyteller, I would get a little bit more of that uh, first edition uh, digital web, uh, mix it in there and say, okay, some places sleeper expectations are going to affect things. But if you wander into a more obscure place, then sleeper expectations no longer hold any influence. On page 66, it says that a corrupted sector of the digital web uh, cannot be repaired. I don't think I would use that as a storyteller because that has sort of a, well, at least to me, it has a sinister implication. That means that marauders or Nefandi or some other you know, really uh, negative faction can go onto the digital web and just start corrupting sectors. And since they can never be repaired, they're going to corrupt more and more and more. And the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And this is a real concern. We need to, you know, get our boys together, get onto the digital web and really fight against these factions. And if that's not what you want your stories to focus on, then all you have to do is say, well, yeah, but there's this way to, to if you really want to, you can uh, repair a corrupted sector. So this is not a, a long-term problem that's going to push us off the digital web. Uh, page 67, it tells us about Streamland. This is a new part of the digital web that was never mentioned before in any mage book. It's saying how people do a lot of you know video and audio streaming nowadays with the internet. And so there's a place of the digital web where there are like, I guess I pictured um, flows like, like water, rivers in the air shooting in, in different directions. And so when you get into streamland, you might uh, accidentally get in front of one and it will push you somewhere or have an effect on you. And yeah, this did not appeal to me. I, I just don't think this is a fun or interesting thing to add to the digital web. I would handle the advent in recent years of, of streaming in, in a much different way. There's a section on apps as apparatus. It says, hey, the with modern technology, technocracy agents can get the technocracy version of a smartphone, and they can run these apps that sort of do rotes for them. And well, I think that's an interesting idea. I imagine the technocracy leadership would be concerned with this. They don't want lazy technocrats that let their machines do their rotes for them and, and get complacent. Um, I think the technocracy would want to emphasize the fact that, hey, you need to be improving your skills, getting practice, don't get lazy and let your skills atrophy. So uh, I think there would be some something to do with this. And what would that look like? Uh, I don't know. It could be more uh, story-ended where uh, this, the a technocracy leadership puts out all these notices saying, hey, you guys don't rely on your smartphones. And all the agents laugh it off and say, no, it's fun. It's easy. We like doing this. Or it might be some rule system where rotes above this level cannot be used um, as an app. Um, I, I don't know. Um, 
exactly how I would approach that, but, but I think it is a very real concern that the leadership would be saying, hey, we don't want lazy technocrats. I think this chapter lost an opportunity in that this was a great place to create new zones or sectors for the digital web and then tell us about them and make us you know, interested so we'd use them in their games. There's really no new places added to the digital web. One of the reasons I liked the first uh, book on the digital web put out for Mage was because it said, hey, here's all these interesting places where interesting things happen. Wouldn't you like to do something with this? Or maybe that will give you ideas for your own. I really didn't see it in this chapter. The closest thing we get to that is um, in social media, there are places where uh, you can see a lot of Valentine's card things because it's, it's, a dating, it's, it's a dating profile for a dating app. And so this is like a place you can walk into. It's a room you can stand in. It's like, I'm sorry, that's just not really interesting. I mean, tell me about some sector where the technocrats have a new experiment that is uh, really dangerous and might bring the house down and um, virtual adepts are trying to break into it and learn something or, I don't know, something like that. This was the place for plot hooks and it, it wasn't there. All right, chapter four. Chapter four is entitled The Technomancer's Toy Box, a title so good they used it again. This section is just stuff and it's a lot of really fun stuff. And uh, it has a few things where you're just like, that's a choice, but you know what? I'm here for it. And I'm just going to share some of the things I kind of liked. The Deviant's Potential Evaluation wrote, which is used various successes to see if someone is likely to turn supernatural in the sense of, are you a kinfolk? When you die, will you form a wraith? I just thought that was kind of neat. Uh, it brings up its only potential, its only possibility, but it gives you an idea of how the technocrats could spend a fair amount of time dealing with potential reality deviants and not even reality deviants. Predictive analysis allows you to introduce a system whereby people just get to ask questions of the storyteller, which is a mechanic I really wish Mage did more of, especially for information gathering effects. Uh, Schrodinger's parcel, which is a parcel where after you talk to someone for a bit, you can have the thing on hand that will help convince them to do the work for you. You talk for someone for a minute and you could be like, what if, what if I told you I could indeed get those 98 Air Jordans that you're so jonesing for and I happen to have it with me and you pull it out. And I mean, who doesn't want to provide someone with sneakers using magic? It gives us a, se a section on what it's like to have other senses. What would it be like if you were someone who could see into the digital web or into the infrared, or you had the ability to pulse map like something that navigates via echolocation? We then get a bunch of procedures, which are vulgar as all get out. And the technocracy is like, you know what? Sometimes you just got to go there. One is called atomic override, where you just rewrite the laws of physics in a area briefly. Yes. Another one is the, the gadget, the 30-second start, where you just go back in time in case anything really bad happens. Uh, you, there's a magic paper bag that obscures things, and this just reminds me of the uh, Onion article, which shows uh, somebody with a wine bottle and a paper bag, and it says, local cops mystified by contents of paper bag container, and it's clearly just a wine bottle in a, in a paper bag, and I like that the technocrats have figured out that technology. There's a wormhole generator. It generates wormhole. Why are you complicating things? There's a thing that allows you to strand people in specific spots of the digital web. 
Thanatos project, which briefly grants you mental access to a quantum computer that lets you gain access to knowledges super fast, which is super fun. There's a bunch of really neat things. My only concern is the fact that frequently the enlightenment for a lot of these objects is quite low. So for instance, the 30 second start, if you use the rules for time travel where everything is plus three difficulty, where you go back in time, you have enlightenment three to try and essentially get one threshold success right out the go. That doesn't seem seem great so a little bit more information on how these devices work maybe when they get a success it's worth more or it's at reduced difficulty something to indicate that these devices in general are at least effective most of the time would have been great we then get constructs rules after a section on some of the prototype technologies that came out of the mmds which is the australia location which includes a uh, paradox sink which just kind of eats paradox this kind of bring back the idea of paradox absorption that we got from forged by dragon's fire that was interesting and the quantum state ionic weapon also known as the christian mark which does a lot of damage a ferocious amount which is nice to see and as i said we get information on constructing chantries which i found a little bit difficult to follow but it's here and it gives you an idea of this is how you can build effects into it and this is how you can represent the fact that there are powerful people that, that work here it still almost always makes more sense to just have your character be part of a very powerful chantry than to try and build your own the last section we get is on terranorming which is a guide to how to change the the nature of reality in an area cards on the table i wrote this this is the first section of mage the ascension canon material that made it into print so if you don't like it that that's fine it's really i can it's okay <laughs> But a lot of fun things, a lot of techno babble that made no sense. One of the items is indicated as being hyper infrared. I think the hyper and the infra cancel out, and that just means it's red. But you know what? I, I'm here for it. I'm perfectly fine. You got a whiff of the Society of Ether in this section. Adam, what did you think of Chapter 4, Technomancer's Toy Box? On page 78, we have a rote called Whiteout, which was damn confusing. Because <laughs> earlier in the digital web write-up, we were reading about whiteout on the digital web. And it's like, okay, so here's this road. Oh, you can cause whiteout. No, no. This, this road is called whiteout, but it has nothing to do with whiteout, which is why it's called whiteout. Um, so <laughs> please give this road a different name, please. Uh, my criticisms aside, I actually really like this road. <laughs> uh, just give it a different name and it's really cool. Um, it is a road where you use sphere magic to remove your influence from an object so that uh, some something that you, you know, file that you wrote or some you know, object that you've had in your possession for a long time, you, you give it off to someone else and they can use sphere magic to trace it back and say, oh, this used to be owned by Bob. Well, let's go talk to Bob about this. So the whiteout road removes your... Uh, influence from it so that using sphere magic it adds difficulty so it becomes um, a lot harder for someone to trace it back to bob uh, and it says that the cassandra complex uses this when they pass you know information packets or actual you know physical packets full of typed up information or, or objects that that have damning evidence against bad guys they hand it off to people but they don't want people knocking on the door saying oh so this is the headquarters of the cassandra complex nice place mind if i move in so you know they they use the whiteout route to remove their influence and of course this is not as effective as what the rogue council was doing in the book titled ascension at the very end of um revised edition they were using uh, oracle level magic to like really thoroughly 
scrub the connection so that nobody could trace it back. This this wrote here in operatives dossier just makes it a lot harder to to trace it back. So this is a an, a non oracle version of that wrote. And so again, uh, with its history in in Mage, I was glad to see this. Just please change the name. <laughs> we have a section on alternate perceptions that says, hey, the technocracy has electronic you know devices from iteration X. They've got cloning uh, special uh, genetic techniques from the progenitors that let agents perceive you know infrared, ultraviolet, other kinds of, of, of things. And so well, why don't we put down some uh, a little write-up on the different kinds of alternate perceptions they could have, some possible uh, rules to work with that. There's also some information on um, augmented reality here. And so I, I thought this section was really, really nice. I'm really glad it was here. I think it uh, gives a great indication for storytellers. Uh, for example, there's some you know goon, uh, some enemy from the technocracy that's chasing down some tradition mages. And it's like, well, this it has this kind of altered perception. So it has this advantages, these advantages and these disadvantages when dealing with the players. It's like, oh, all of a sudden, this alleyway fight scene becomes interesting for me as a storyteller because you know I have something unexpected to pass to the players, but there's a weakness that they can find and, and knock over the, the villain. And so I, I really liked uh, putting this in the book. My only nitpick is in this al alternate perceptions uh, section, they have a write-up on augmented reality. And I think they should better take into account the confusion from getting senses from two different worlds at the same time. The augmented reality write-up here makes it look like, oh, you can do these things too. It's like, no, tell us about the weaknesses that you mentioned you know, earlier in chapter three. Let, let's really pull this together, folks. Uh, the gadgets are more interesting in this book than uh, Technocracy Reloaded. I thought the isolated strand was really cool. Uh, this is a way to make a new small portion of the digital web and then either escape into it or push your opponent into it. And so this was, uh, I thought it was an interesting idea. And uh, if you were to add in the possibilities of augmented reality to on top of this, I think this could be some really interesting scenes to run in your games as a storyteller. So love that one. There's a construct purchase rules in here and there have been really, there's been no mention of uh, construct or chantry uh, construction rules since the very beginning of first edition, by the way. Not, not reserved for anything, just, just thought I'd throw that in there. And so when I saw this section, I was all excited. It's like, oh, finally we're going to deal with, with this. And well, no, not, not really. The, this section is, is quite short. It is not at all thorough. It only deals with constructs for the technocracy. Um, I think the purchase table on page 89 was, was helpful. I think it can be a useful tool for someone who wants to create their own chantry and construct creation rules in Mage 20. This is actually a good starting point, and so I found that helpful. But overall, for um, do I have all the rules I need to, to let my players build their own construct and run with it? No, I, I think it actually falls short of that. I think there is um, some further work needed to, to really make that shine. But that table on page 89 actually is a very good starting point, so I'm glad it's in here. And then the chapter finishes out with a, a terra-norming section, which um, I, I, I wish it had been a little more useful. I wish there had been a little bit more specific uh, information on, on terra-norming. It was really more like a rough suggestions uh, than anything else, uh, at least... If I understood it correctly. So uh, those are my thoughts on chapter four and uh, ready for chapter five. Chapter five is entitled chapter five. I didn't actually write down the name of the chapter. I'm so good at this. Chapter five mission statements. And this just kind of gives some outstanding missions that the technocracy kind of has. 
And to riff off of a comment Adam made, I feel like a lot of the devices presented here are great options to be the centerpiece of interesting stories and not just equipment that the characters have to like solve a problem. I think it has a lot of cool things that could be like, oh, this is an object of research that did this thing. And it just kind of gives some uh, options of stories that can happen in different places and who might be involved in it and uh, hybrid threats facing it. So it's a kind of a bunch of basic ideas for what they could consist of. I wish these had been given more space to breathe. It moves very quickly in some areas and not in others. Uh, there is also the publication Welcome to the Rock, which is a jumpstart for the technocracy. So it seems like they're trying to give a bunch of things that you can immediately do. Uh, Adam, what did you think about the section? For mission one, I'm wondering why the disparates care so much about a Mars mission, and yet the traditions don't. That I, I it seems like it might have been the other way around for me, but um, I, I don't know. That that was kind of an odd choice. Um, also, in mission four, it describes a specific uh, physical fight that's going to happen, and it tells you who's going to win and where to go from there. And I, I don't I don't like that. When when there's a fight, I like the idea that th this could go any which way and storyteller's going to have to make sense of that instead of it encourages the storyteller to fudge the dice because you know this this side really is supposed to win otherwise the rest of this mission isn't going to fall into place it's like no don't 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 do that when you're writing a mission don't don't tell me who's going to win a fight if you're going to have a fight then this could go any which way yes at and that point to... it is no longer a game it is a script <laughs> yeah yeah so overall I think this chapter would have benefited from having less missions with a little more detail around them. You know, possibilities of what might go wrong, what might be happening on the sidelines that could complicate things. I mean, make it a little more interesting for me. So yeah, fewer missions with a larger word count and, and more possibilities in there. And I don't necessarily need to have, you know, stat blocks for NPCs they're going to meet on these missions because I think we've, we've covered this uh, pretty well. In fact, one of the things I really liked about this chapter was it reminded us that we have NPC uh, generic stat blocks for, blocks for different kinds of NPCs and it tells us where to go and find them. It's like, hey, you want an average police officer in Mage 20 here it is. You want an elite uh, SWAT team member who's got really good equipment and is really well trained. Okay, go over here. It's there for you. Or you want a low-level mage that you know, you're going to bump into. You're going to find the write-up over there. So reminding storytellers that, hey, there are generic uh, stat blocks. Here's where you find them. You don't have to write all this yourself. That was really great. So that, that was very well done in this chapter. But uh, other than that, um, I think I'm ready for uh, the general discussion. Overall, to me, this book was messy in a good way. It describes vampires as controlling the media, which is one of the reasons why information about the Ascension War sometimes gets out. Sure. There's a bunch of ideas that are interesting that I could use more information about how to actually use it. The book moved. I don't feel like the book really wasted my time. There wasn't a lot of parts to it to me where it felt like it was talking down to me or telling me what I should believe as a person. There's a bunch of 101 level information that I really wish had been included in the storyteller section of Technocracy Reloaded, which to me was a little bit lackluster. The mission section, I was literally falling asleep during, but I think that was due to the Benadryl that I had taken. So my apologies for not having more commentary on that one. The, uh, typographically, there's a bunch of shifts. Primal energy is no longer capitalized. There's misspellings in a few places. Uh, paradigms in a few places aren't capitalized and italicized, and historically, they've been done before. Crown Esther 
Monster is capitalized for some reason. The book refers to Clarity Quiet. We don't have Clarity in M20. It's now Denial. Magi is in here and capitalized. Uh, the term minus two penalty is used. Minus two is a bonus in Mage. Uh, the header for the social media uses a quote text formatting. It switches between metric and customary units. The background cost changes case. So it's just one of those things where it, it did to me feel like it needed a little bit more polish. I generally like the art a lot more than I did in the previous book. I wish Technocracy Reloaded had gotten a bit more of this energy. The pricing is a little bit weird. So this is 102 pages and $15. Technocracy Reloaded is like 260 or something and is 20. This brought a lot of previous edition energy to the party, which I was here for. And one of the things that Tomes of Magic as a series has made me appreciate is we often level criticisms like this book is oddly organized or was not consistent. Mage never has been really. So if you're gonna if you're gonna break from continuity and canon or be inconsistent, at least do it in a way that's fun. And I really feel like this uh, this book did. I, I have the feeling that the authors were given much more creative freedom to just kind of say things, which I appreciated. I hope we get information like this for the traditions. I wish the Book of the Fallen had information like this for the Nefandi. There was a lot of stuff that was fun, and it made the technocracy in a lot of cases uh, gameable, which at the end of the day, a game book needs to do. It did try and update a few systems. I think it could have gone a little bit further. You could tell I was super tired when I wrote up my notes because one of the ones I said was, was not screaming in pain, thumbs up. So, <laughs> that kind of gives you, yeah, you the standard I was going for. Um, the, the treasures are, are fun. A bunch of them have weird mechanisms like the emotional field array. You affect 1d10 mortals per dot of mind. We have never seen that mechanic before. Sure. There's a bunch of new mechanical places this book goes, which you can either view as inconsistent or people trying things out. And I'm fine with that. Some tightening up, as Adam had mentioned, on, wait, are you positing that this meta plot event occurred or is it contingent would have been useful. But I, I, on the whole, I thought this was super fun. Yeah, I would have no difficulty recommending this to someone, especially a storyteller that felt comfortable picking and choosing. I would have difficulty passing this over to someone who is looking for a monolithic interpretation of the technocracy, but yeah. Hey listeners, Terry breaking in here. Just a note that I found out after the fact that I had been looking at a older version of the PDF. And when I went back, some of the errors I pointed out in editing had been fixed. Some of them hadn't apologies, but if you go through and go, Hey, they didn't fix that. Well, I caught it on with the episode. What did you think about it, Adam? Uh, I thought this was more gameable than uh, Technocracy Reloaded. I think they got a little more uh, free and creative. They, it seems like they had a little more freedom to get a little crazy. And yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that because uh, if, if there's some you know crazy object or crazy road in there, it's like as a storyteller, I, I don't have to put it in my game. But if it's crazy enough, if, if it's crazy in an interesting way, it makes me want to put it in mm -hmm. my game. And so and then that's one of the things I like about World of Darkness books. It's idea books. Looking through, it's like, I could do this or I could not. Make me want to. And this book did. It made me want to. <laughs> there was uh, a, a lot of fun stuff in here. It, this book is less than half the length of Technocracy Reloaded. And it only contains like the leftovers or the extras from Technocracy Reloaded. Yet... I like it more. I want to use it more. This is more fun. As Terry said, there are some inconsistencies here, but then, you know, there are some inconsistencies in Technocracy Reloaded, but these inconsistencies are more fun. <laughs> so, yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of fun here. A, a lot of stuff that I would like to use. Uh, just 
this was like, I think the first time in a while that I've read through a list of technocracy devices with a capital D and thought, oh, that looks like fun. Oh, that looks like cool. Hey, if I just add this, I could do this whole scene where I totally bamboozle my players. Not, not that I would ever do that. I'm a conscientious storyteller. But still, I mean, you know, you throw the possibility out there and temptations are involved. So yeah, this book was a lot of fun. And nitpicks aside, this is the book that I would... Uh, point a mage 20 player towards and say yeah. look if you want some fun stuff for technocracy just look through this you'll get ideas you know the kind you'll want to use and and this is fun so definitely thumbs up for this one yeah guide to technocracy plus operatives dossier i think you could have some super fun times um, yeah definitely those two books together could give you some very good possibilities it's a good idea i had kind of forgotten about guide that was at the end of second edition but it had some good stuff in it, it did uh, so what are we reading next adam Next up is the Rich Bastard's Guide to Magic. This is a very specific supplement. Only only mages who are very wealthy and are real jerks. So I get the wealthy mages who are nice guys. This book just does not cover them. And the mages who are jerks but don't have a lot of money, again, we're, we're just not looking at them this time. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's next. I'm jazzed to read it. That's another one that isn't incredibly long and that where we, uh, where we did an author interview. So if people are curious to hear what the authors intended before we have that discussion, I'll include that in the show notes. Definitely. Well, were there any quotes that, that stood out uh, to you while reading this, Terry? I mean, maybe, maybe just uh, one uh, or maybe more. Yes. So I already mentioned hyper tea as a phenomenon and I'm like, I did an eye roll and then I realized it was, they delivered for the rest of the book. One section talking about MMDS, despite incessant jokes about them designing the perfect spreadsheet, the time motion managers have their own research team at MMDS. I'm sorry, if you're going to come for me like this in a mage book, at least to send a town car. I really want perfect spreadsheet to be the, instead of merging with control, what time motion managers merge with when they gain a retake 10. Another one that stuck with me was the technocratic union internally designates these people as non-affiliated magic using reality deviants or namers. However, initial research indicates that the term namered is off-putting to the target, creating unnecessary communication noise and complicating negotiations. When approaching namereds in the field of negotiation, the appropriate term is unaligned. So um, I just like the fact that the technocracy has done market research to determine that the unaligned don't like being called namereds and that you should call namereds the unaligned. That's my technocracy. And those are my quotes. Awesome. Great. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, uh, you can leave us a review, and that will make us more visible in other people's searches so that they have a better chance of finding us when they're looking for a good podcast to listen to. You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com, where you can catch past episodes, see the order in which they came out, and see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. Well, I wanted to say a special thanks to our executive producers. Terry, can you give us their names? A special thank you to Oracle Buck Farmer, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Josh Hillerup, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle Mikhail, Oracle the Crew of Erebus, as well as Alex, Alexia, Anders S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Badurfi, Berto, Blaze Hibbert, Boo, Boogers to the Sixth, Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris P., Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribser, Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsick, Gargle Noir, George Laura, Guy Conan Stewart, Eable, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Biggs, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew, 
Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aron, Nathan Weaver, Nubero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanoff, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Pukaji, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H. Ryan Kennedy, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Thank you so much. And Jason Vines. Sorry. If you would like to become an executive producer to uh, for Mage the Podcast, it would help us to keep bringing you episodes like this. You would also become a part of our council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening to Tomes of Magic. And until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Keep the technocracy weird. Go change reality. Bye.